And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Stephen Mansfield. He's a New York Times best-selling author and a popular speaker who coaches leaders worldwide. One of the many books he's written is Forgotten Founding Father, The Heroic Legacy of George Whitfield, part of the Leaders in Action series. Stephen, it's a, it's a great privilege to have you with us today. Well, thank you. It's always good to be with you. You know, this George Whitfield, he seems like quite an interesting character. Uh, I find it fascinating that you've written about him. Where do we start as we consider this man's life? Well, you know, probably the best way to understand him, broadly speaking, is that he was a man who really almost unified the American colonies through a revival uh, in a way that prepared us for the American Revolution. Uh, Many people, many scholars believe that had it not been for the the Great Awakening that he led, uh, preaching from Florida, Georgia, all the way up to the New England states, colonies at that time, that we wouldn't have had a unified country. We would not have had sort of a national consciousness uh, with which to oppose King George III in Parliament. So um, his story begins back in England, and I'm sure you'll, you'll take me there and ask a few more questions and set that up. But the, the big fat thing we want our listeners to know is that uh, George Whitfield really is the forgotten founding father. He really should rank in our sort of pantheon of founding fathers with the Washingtons and Jeffersons and so on, because uh, his, his preaching... Uh, his warnings about England's encroachment on colonial rights, um, him him being, as one scholar said, the first intercolonial event, is what really created sort of an American Christian consciousness before the American Revolution ever broke out. It's interesting how people with strong Christian convictions essentially become the bedrock and, and help lay the principles of this great republic that would follow. Yeah, there's no question about it. In fact, there's a there's a scholar whose name was Heimert, and then he lends his name to a thing called the Heimert thesis. And this thesis, this Heimert was not a believer, uh, he maintained that had there been no uh, Great Awakening, the revival called the Great Awakening, there would have been no American Revolution. And, uh, and yet the question you know, we have to ask, even though we don't want to go negative, is why don't we hear more about George Whitfield in our school textbooks? Well, uh, it's because exactly because he was a believer. Mm. And those who uh, don't want to acknowledge a Christian origin to our nation, a Christian roots, a Christian founding, you know, they've, they've got to write a man like George Whitfield uh, out of the story. But our founding fathers didn't. In my book, I even quote some of the founding fathers who, men like Franklin, for example, who give great credit to George Whitfield. And that's why I went so far as to title my book, Forgotten Founding Father, because I think that's exactly the case with this great man. Yeah, before our telephone call today, uh, my wife reminded me how that Franklin admired Mr. Whitfield, and, and so that's that's really cool. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, his life in England before he comes to what would become the United States. Well, Whitfield was born in 1714 in England, in Gloucester, England. Um, his, his father, Thomas, died uh, very soon after he was born. Uh, and so he essentially worked in his mother, with his mother at an inn. They ran an inn for quite some time. Um, but because of Whitfield's exceptional intellectual skills, he ended up uh, enrolling in Pembroke College at Oxford. Now, he worked as a servitor, which was the way he paid his tuition. He certainly wasn't upper crust in any sense. But uh, it was there at Oxford that he was introduced to the Holy Club that was founded by the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley both had some degree of their conversion experience. Those who know their story know that uh, that was kind of a progression for them. Um, but they were already meeting at Oxford. They were already assembling uh, others like them into a group that kept each other accountable on holiness and seeking Jesus. And 
uh, Whitfield fell in among them. And it's interesting because Whitfield went through the classic stages uh, of, of that era uh, in trying to have a real relationship with Jesus and trying to come to genuine faith, but attempting to do it legalistically. Um, he heard, for example, from Scripture that he was to uh, you know mortify the flesh and and uh, deny himself, and so he would go so far as to overfast to the point where he hurt himself, or sleep in the snow, or you know do odd things like that. Go around looking as bedraggled as possible, not wear a wig, which in that day was a huge social faux pas. All of it by way of mortifying himself. And of course, it sounds to us very much like Martin Luther and how Martin Luther tried to earn the grace of God by you know hurting himself in essence, uh, over overdoing it in the flesh. Well, obviously, eventually, uh, George Whitfield had a dramatic conversion uh, in which he came to recognize the full work of Jesus Christ on the cross, uh, came to a full faith, came to uh, repent of his trying to earn the grace of God, and, and had, to, had a full biblical salvation experience and began to understand the doctrines of grace. And So from that point on, uh, he really began to absorb the gospel, drink in the truth, and he became part of, and eventually, I think, the leader of, the uh, Great Awakening that was happening just then in England that actually preceded the Holy Club and the Wesleys, but, but nevertheless was very much proclaimed by them. And that's the beginning of Whitfield's sort of public ministry. Wait, what is the uh, time frame of that Great Awakening? Well, the Great Awakening would be happening in England sort of in the, uh, in, in the early to mid-1700s, so... Uh, for example, Whitfield would have preached his uh, first sermon at his college in 1736. Um, the Holy Club would have would have begun along about, or he would have been, been introduced to the Holy Club about 1733. Mm. So you're really talking about the you know middle second quarter, so to speak, of the 1700s. They sort of picture it accurately, mm. and then of course uh, it's perfect timing because as that revival uh, sweeps England, sweeps the British Isles, as many know. Uh, most historians say that had there not been what we sometimes call the Wesleyan revivals or the Great Awakening, England would have been heading very much towards a French-style revolution. Most of us know that the French Revolution was very much anti-religion, very ungodly, uh, very immoral, and uh, very anti-clerical, as they used to say. But England was spared all of that largely because of these revivals that Wesley and Whitfield led. Mm. So uh, he started preaching at a young age, did he? Yes, I mean, he was born in 1714, and his first sermon uh, that we know of uh, was in 1736, so what's that, he's 24, 22 years old. Hmm. Um, so it's very early, he hadn't even finished uh, seminary by that time. Oh, that's interesting. And um, before we go too far, what about his style? Did it develop over the years, or was it always very, he had a very outgoing, uh, almost charismatic style from what I've heard? Well, it's something that was there almost from the moment of conversion, but it wasn't there previously. He was known to be kind of shy and retiring early on in his life. But once he had his conversion, once he was born again, I'm telling you, uh, the, the change in him was pretty pronounced. And what, what was so fascinating about him is that he wasn't um, sort of a, how would we say it, that he a theatrical, artsy, big personality. But when he preached, uh, he was so animated by the Spirit that one of the most famous actors of his day who heard Whitfield preach said that he would give all he possessed to be able to say the word Mesopotamia the way that Whitfield said it. <laughs> In other words, you know, he says it so powerfully and so on that I wish I could say it like him, and this was maybe the, you know, the Brad Pitt or John Wayne of his generation or yeah. you know, some of the better actors. So um, all that to say, 
uh, Whitfield had a very, I don't want to say dramatic, because that sounds like it's humanly engendered, but certainly demonstrative, certainly big, bold, uh, powerfully spoken. And one of the things I want to mention now, just in case I might let it slip later, is that almost from the beginning, Whitfield had what could only be concluded as a supernatural gift of, well, I don't know what else to call it, volume or projection. Um, before he ever came to the American colonies, he preached in Hyde Park. And uh, some people were stunned that Hyde Park was filled with people and all of them could hear Whitfield. Well, it would have been tens of thousands of people. Well, some of the skeptics doubted this because, you know, how, how can anyone do that naturally? I'm quite sure I can't do it in natural, my natural voice. I have something of a, of a raspy voice and not a, not a real out loud pronounced kind of voice. need a sound system. Well, when, when Whitfield eventually made it to Philadelphia in some of his later visits, uh, Benjamin Franklin was stunned by the volume, uh, the carry of Whitfield's voice. And so he walked the perimeter of the preaching field where Whitfield was preaching and even had to walk into Philadelphia down some of the streets. And uh, Franklin concluded that some 70,000 people could hear uh, Whitfield preach. Oh, Think about my. that. 70,000, I'm sitting in Nashville right now, uh, that's the size of our football arena. That's the size, the size of our NFL football arena. So wow. 70,000 people would have been able to hear him. And by the way, Franklin was not a believer. He was just a fan. Uh, so he, wasn't, he didn't have any reason to exaggerate. He was a man of science, or as much as there was one in the colonial mm. period in America. So that will give you some example of the kind of supernatural dynamics that attended, um, uh, you know, even, even in verifiable ways, Whitfield's ministry. That's fascinating. Today we're talking with Stephen Mansfield. New York Times bestselling author. He's written the book, Forgotten Founding Father, The Heroic Legacy of George Whitfield, part of the Leaders in Action series. Now, uh, George Whitfield would eventually come to America. About what time frame did he come over? He came over in the late 30s. Um, you know, he made seven different trips. So his first voyage to America was in 1738. Um, and so you, you just can picture that seven different trips occurred. In fact, he died on the 7th and is buried in America. Mm. Uh, so seven different trips, and um, those, that was very arduous. That was pretty much un, unheard of, um, but it's a little hard to keep the dates in our minds. But basically between 1738 when he first arrived and the 1770s when he died, uh, he made seven different trips. I think that's a pretty stunning record. It is, yeah. And these trips uh, have to be very tiring. It's not like jumping on a plane and flying to England and back to America. Uh, this is by uh, by a ship, right? Oh, yes. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's rather uh, interesting that we're talking about this right now. This Friday, I will get on a plane and fly to London, oh. um, and I'll be back by Sunday night. I had to have a quick afternoon, <laughs> Saturday afternoon meeting, and in our funny modern world, um, I'll fly over. Um, do my meetings, spend the night, get on a plane, fly back. I'll be back in time for dinner with my wife Sunday evening. Um, But at that time, of course, you were looking at, depending on the waves, depending on the winds, depending on the time of year and the skills of the crew, you could be looking at five or six weeks. Wow. It had taken the the pilgrims, as as many of us will remember, as we head towards Thanksgiving, uh, you know, 66 days Mm. uh, to, uh, to sail across the ocean. It was a little faster by the 1700s, but still... Uh, it could take four, five, six weeks based on, you know, all the conditions. So here's George Whitfield. He comes to America the first time, 1738. Um, at this point, he's a converted man. Um, God the Holy Spirit is working through him as he preaches. Uh, what happens next in his life, and how did uh, how did it affect people's thinking and hearts? How did God use this uh, to, to bring about uh, what appears to be um, the basis for the American Revolution? 
Well, he was powerfully anointed to preach and to preach repentance and conversion. Um, and what's interesting about Whitfield is, and I really admire him for this, by the way, I would recommend to every, certainly every pastor and Christian leader to read his journals. They are um, almost a rite of passage for those who want to proclaim the gospel of Christ in a way, such a way as to transform culture. Mm. Uh, but and they profoundly influenced me. The Whitfield's journals really tell the tale. Uh, Whitfield would preach, and, you know, people would come running. I mean, we have these descriptions that, you know, he's preaching in the Carolinas, or he's preaching in Maryland, he's preaching wherever he's preaching, Pennsylvania. And people would hear that he was coming because the newspapers had begun to follow him all up and down the eastern seaboard and all the colonies, and people would come running. Well, I mean, there were crowds already gathering in the first of his tours, as they called them, up and down the eastern seaboard. By the five, fifth or the sixth, you know, they, they had crowd control problems. So whole towns would shut down to, to hear Whitfield preach. And it's, it's intriguing, given the, the challenges that we have now, that, you know, Whitfield would come to conclude that the Anglican, he was, he was, he was Anglican, of course, and so his first, the first thing he attempted to do was to go to the Anglican church, but... But many times when he found that church to be dead or thought it was just filled with wealthy people who had no regard for the gospel, um, you'd hear him preaching on the other side of a hill, and what had he done? He'd gone to the slave quarters. He had gone to Wonderful. the coal mines. He had gone to uh, you know, some remote place where he was preaching to you know, beggars. Uh, he would go to the poor and the downcast um, and sidestep uh, dead churches that had no real gospel in them. And, oh. of course, the, the, the racial reconciliation message and... The fact that he would meet with Quakers, he would meet with people he obviously didn't agree with theologically, but, but, but saw to be pursuing Jesus. And all of this was very transformative uh, in, the, in the American colonies. And ultimately, in one of his last missions, he ended up uh, preaching where Jonathan Edwards had been preaching. And already there was some revival in that area. Well, I mean, this just, this just brought what Whitfield was doing in connection with what the Spirit of God was already doing in New England. And all of it was transformative of the American colonies. And again... Not only were the colonies then more deeply returned to the gospel, uh, but they were also uh, more unified, therefore more resistance to the encroachments of Parliament and Crown, and uh, Whitfield had constantly been preaching about their liberties, their liberties in Christ, their special calling and destiny as a people. So, uh, again, all of that together uh, leads us to recognize that, you know, without these revivals, you probably would not have had an American Revolution. Mm. Many of us today are so concerned about where our country is headed. And, uh, you know, inevitably you keep coming back to the fact that we really needed a revival today, a revival and reformation, uh, you know, in our hearts, in our churches, in, uh, and flowing out to our land. So here's Whitfield. He's preaching. Uh, I've heard that he um, he was a fairly small man, even though he, he, he's got this large voice. Uh, he's, he's rather small in, in stature. He, he was very interesting. He was small. Uh, those who criticized him called him Dr. Squintum because he had one eye. Uh, some people call it a lazy eye or a slant eye. You, you know what I mean, an eye that drew. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they called him Dr. Squintum. <laughs> uh, he was not a big man at all um, and was rather, was rather rotund. I mean, not fat in the sense of, of, of being somehow given to gluttony, but just of a, of a portly body type. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yet... You know, I'm glad that he was made that way because, you know, it's almost like Jesus in a sense. In Isaiah 53, you know, there's nothing in his, in his features to make us desire him. He's just right. a normal-looking guy, and yet God used him powerfully. And there were, there were constant supernatural miracles that, that made the rounds. For, for example, one of my favorites is that Whitfield was 
riding along one day by himself heading to his next preaching mission, and he had taken up a pretty good-sized offering for an orphanage that he was sponsoring in, uh, in Georgia. And so he had a pocket full of money. Well, a thief came running up, uh, two thieves actually, and, and took, uh, took Whitfield's coat, insisted on taking the money inside, and threw Whitfield the thief's coat. So Whitfield, you know, the guy rides off, Whitfield says, well, it's all, all, all into the Lord, puts the thief's coat on and rides onto the town that he's, he's destined for. Mm-hmm. Well, after a while, he looks back and sees the thief is, is racing towards him again, just as Whitfield's entered this, this new town. Well, so Whitfield hurries into the new town, gets there, sticks his hand in the pocket of the coat, and realizes that there's more money in the thief's coat <laughs> than there was in the coat he had, he had given to the thief, and the thief probably had realized that and come running along. So even though his coat was stolen, uh, Whitfield could buy a new coat and had more money for the orphanage than he'd, I think, by, by half, by the way, he had twice as much um, <laughs> than he had before. Well, these were the kinds of things that happened all the time to Whitfield, yeah. and, and so they encouraged people in the colonies. And, of course, there were... Many conversions. I mean, I mean, every family. The statistic is that, that every, there were so many conversions that they equaled one per family in the American colonies. Wow, uh, that's pretty stunning. And the, the the thing that I most want us to remember is that he was so much the father of the American Revolution. I actually start my book with a story where soldiers are gathered in a Presbyterian church in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and suddenly they remember or they realize that Whitfield's buried below the floor. He was he's actually buried in that church, and his oh my. remains are there to this day. And um, so they go down, they open up the uh, crypt, they find his body, they then see he's, he's buried in his black preaching robe, and each of them cut off little pieces of the preaching robe to pin to their uniforms, almost as a, well, I guess, maybe good luck, maybe a transfer of the grace of God, the blessing of God, you know, some kind of a, <laughs> of a blessing to be upon them as they go into battle. Yeah. And uh, these things were traded around the troops uh, throughout the rest of the war. So that's how much he was the father of our revolution. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, what about what he believed? Uh, you mentioned uh, he had a strong conviction regarding the gospel of grace. Essentially, any any comments on that? Well, that's one of the things that really is unique about Whitfield is that most evangelists um, lean sort of Arminian in their theology. I don't say that critically. It's just a it's just a historical statement. But Whitfield was very very reformed. He was a full Calvinist. Um, in fact. You know his buddy Wesley. He and he and John Wesley actually had had, had uh, breached in their relationship over this. And once, when Whitfield was preaching here in the in the, in the colonies, uh, in the Americas, uh, Wesley began to preach against Whitfield, horribly betrayed him. And it was all over this issue of uh, Wesley's Arminianism versus mm-hmm. Whitfield's uh, reformed beliefs. But but there's no question Whitfield believed in a sovereign God who called men to to Jesus, and um, he he believed uh, in the great reformed tradition. Uh, not only of, the, of the, the ways of salvation, the ways of the Lord in saving sinners, but uh, also in God's will, God's law, God's truth for society. And, um, and I think that laid uh, a very powerful um, foundation for the American colonies. In fact, Lord von Rank, uh, one of the great German historians, said that about 90% uh, of those who were in the American colonies were reformed in some sense, theologically reformed in some sense. And that was largely due to the to God's use of George Whitfield. Mm. It appears that he caught the nuance how that God elects, and yet he also ordains the means of salvation, which means that uh, his servants must work very hard in preaching the gospel. Yes, and, and that's, that's one of the great things that I think people, especially who are evangelistically oriented, can learn from Whitfield, yeah. um, is that he, he absolutely believed in the dutiful proclamation of the gospel, but he also believed that salvation was of the Lord. Yeah, and right. and that, he, that he could take no credit for it, that he could, 
he simply offered his gifts before God, and God would use them as he chose to. It's very beautiful to hear him writing about those very themes in his journals. Well, does anything else stand out? We've got maybe a couple minutes left today. Uh, we're talking about George Whitfield, the famous evangelist and really the, essentially a founding father, is your point, uh, of America. Any other um, facts that stand out about this interesting man? Well, there, there are two things I'll mention. One is that uh, in my book and, and others, of course, the founding fathers just gave him tremendous tribute. In fact, Benjamin Franklin wanted to start an entire uh, civilized, you know, well, maybe a, maybe a large colony with Whitfield, with Whitfield's spirituality and Franklin's practical uh, gift for governance and so on. I mean, that's how much he admired the man. Mm-hmm. And you can hardly find a major leader in American history, a major Christian leader in American history, who wasn't influenced by George Whitfield, whether you're just mentioning Moody or even, even someone as, as unusual as Billy Sunday or Billy Graham. Uh, uh, all of them were deeply influenced by Whitfield and have written of it. So... Um, he's not only the maybe the father of our revolution, certainly spiritually, uh, but he's also father of many of the great evangelists who have influenced American history since then. You know, you remind me of something, how that um, some secular men, um, in this case like Benjamin Franklin, if they're honest um, and they just observe, they, they quickly see the benefits of Christian ways, a Christian culture, and so they kind of get on board from that perspective, it appears. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the gospel. We need to remember that, you know, we're told in Matthew seven that the, the, the we'll know the truth by the fruit. We'll know them by their fruit, and, and so there is discernible fruit to be produced by uh, those who are genuinely of faith, and that that fruit's discernible by the, the lost as well. And so that's that's a, that's an important point that many uh, secular scholars, many of our less religious founding fathers, uh, I would say the Benjamin Franklin, we have no evidence that he was ever. Uh, converted to Christianity, though he certainly uh, believed in God and, and urged a, a, a godly orientation in our early history. But he was so enamored of Whitfield that, that like I say, he wanted to start an entire, <laughs> I guess there's no better word than civilization or region of the country that was governed by the principles of the two men. So that's that should encourage us, that if we walk in God's ways, the fruit will be evident to all, and yeah. uh, and that will be part of the way we, we commend the gospel to our generation. Amen. And, and going back to his early life with this holy club back in England, that reminds me of another thread of thought, and you talk about it in your book, um, Manly Men, uh, that of accountability and having like a band of brothers. Yes, I'm I'm a big believer in the idea that uh, men especially need to have other men around them, uh, helping them. Uh, fashion their character and holding up a mirror for them and in the holy club they would uh, they had literally had a list of 20 questions this is easily available on the internet uh, 20 questions they would ask each other the last one was have you lied to me about any of these things <laughs> i've always liked that because <laughs> there was some suspicion of sin you know, so here you question each other and it wasn't just a sin sniffing society it was a, it was a, <laughs> a group uh designed to help each other perfect holiness in their lives and uh, the good news about that was that it wasn't just something that was assumed to be an individual project. We understood that we needed each other to accomplish that. And I think it confirms the great principle that history is not ruled by the majority. It's ruled by the dedicated minority. And here you had a handful of men at Oxford, and they were seeking God in such a way that they changed the history of the Western world. I believe it's still possible again. Amen. One final question. Um, suppose we have uh, some men listening today. They want to affect culture for the glory of Christ. Uh, do you have some books you could recommend to them? Uh, I would strongly recommend mine. I have no hesitation doing that. Saying Forgotten Founding Father, uh, but the, the one you've mentioned by me, there's also on George Whitfield, a book by Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-C-K. But if you're talking about men in specific, 
Um, there are two, two books I strongly recommend. One would be mine, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men. And another would be Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. I think it's a very powerful word for men. So uh, get those, read those authors more fully. It will lead you to still other books. I have a whole long list of, uh, of books I recommend for men in the back of my book, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and, and uh, then live it for the glory of God. It's wonderful. Um, if you walk into the Elmendorf household, you'll see my books piled by my, my easy chair, and, and one of the books is that yellow-colored book of manly men. <laughs> so it's, it's there, along with other uh, fine books. Well, thank you so much, uh, Stephen Mansfield, for joining us today. It's, it's been a real uh, privilege talking with you. Great to be with you again. God bless. God bless you. And dear listener, please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. Now